I'm here. I'm ready to listen, let my mind go places I didn't realize existed. At the end of this podcast, if it takes your mind anywhere close to where it takes mine, and you feel like sharing or contributing, please go to thecognitiverampage.com and contribute, donate, keep feeling that change. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. I'm trying to find a better crossover between the, okay, now I have to act like I'm not posting on Facebook Live at the same time that I'm live on the podcast. I got to have like a better segue of like, welcome to the Cognitive Ramp. I got to do something. I don't know, man, but uh, I hope you all are taking care of you out there. The book's out. You know that. I probably talk too much about it anyway, but you can get it on Amazon. Came out uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, a lot of love and everybody, uh, a lot of love to everybody that's been, uh, helpful and sharing those that bought it, that are reading it, uh, warms my heart, man. It's, uh, that you allow my words into your life like that. So it's just very personal. I think reading a book is personal to me. So, uh, those of you that have uh, bought it and read it, I feel like I know you too. But my guest on the podcast today, I swear I'm still going to say it, doctor. Richard Bartlett. Um, I added the doctor. It's not really a doctor, but there's a D in the middle. So it screws me up. I'm like, Richard D. Oh, Dr. Richard. Okay. Richard Bartlett is on the show today. Co-founder of Lumio of Lumio. And I love how he said it. I wrote it on the thing. Uh, a writer of things on the internet. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks, Adam. I'm really glad to be here. I do have to clarify, though, uh, there is a Dr. Richard Bartlett, if you search on the web, and I think he's a um, professor of, like, lizards and geckos, so <laughs> well, if you're don't studying, ask any questions about lizards. <laughs> well, if you're studying humanity, man, you're kind of close to it, especially if you're building uh, uh, democracy tools to help out our, our, lizard brain, our lizard brains try to work together, man. Don't get me started on the reptilian overlords, though. <laughs> That's a whole other show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody commented, like, who the fuck is hosting now? Is that Adam Lowry or Alex Jones? What the hell? I'm like, I'm seriously just talking left field, man. I, I, I don't believe reptilian people are running our, our world at all. I don't think. I mean... I also do not believe in the reptilians. <laughs> right. I was merely speaking to the reptilian brain. Because... Uh, <laughs> Jumping in kind of directly to, to what you're doing, uh, I watched that first video, which I tried to share. I want to share the video itself of you being interviewed, but how you all got started with Occupy on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Walk me through this, man. I mean, you know what? I do that. I jump right in. But before I do that, what brought you to be Richard before Occupy, right? What what built the man on the yeah. way there before you're like, I'm going to Occupy? What would you? Yeah. What was it like, man? Um, I, I take it you want a long introduction. Is that right? That's what I want, brother. Yeah. Right. I got to right. get to know you. Like, imagine it's a therapist chair, right? And I'm just the dude who's just hanging. We're like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. tell me about your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can do that because it's context, right? <laughs> right. Um, so as you can tell from my accent, um, I was born in New Zealand and, um, I grew up in a really small, like outside of a small town in the countryside, um, we were growing vegetables. I had a motorbike and a gun. And, um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that was a good life. It meant that I had, um, a lot of wide open spaces and freedom and, um, uh, not, not such a safe childhood as maybe others, other urban kids had. Yeah. Um, 
And but on the other part of the childhood was um, I was raised in this quite peculiar and very strict Christian church. And um, it was sort of like a transplant from, if you imagine transplanting 1950s Holland into um, a farm, farming town in New Zealand, you, you get a little taste of this like really um, prescriptive um, approach to religion that I was raised in. That's a change though. When you're a, a kid in nature running around, there were times in my childhood where we would just get lost in the orange groves forever and, uh, you know, eat the oranges off the tree. You know, that's how we just hang out. So when you, you go from that kind of wild free imagination to now you have to operate within this structure, I'm sure that was probably the first time like, Oh, hold, hold on, man. Yeah. And you know, the, um, I still have a lot of respect for religion. It does, it, it can do a lot of good for people. Um, but the particular mode that I was raised in just didn't suit my character. You know, I was raised with, um, this, this, uh, understanding that was shared by everyone in my family and everyone, um, in my community and in my school, everyone all had this understanding that, um, all of the important questions in the world have already been answered and you just have to, um, align your life to this book that already has all the answers in it. And I really tried, you know, I really tried to get on board with that because it's nice. It's comforting to think that there's like this coherence to the world that it all makes sense and that there's justice and fairness and, um, you know, mercy and grace and all these nice things. Um, it's nice to, to like relax into that and be like, ah, you know, there's a creator and he's got my best interest at heart. Um, but I just couldn't, (laughs) I really gave it my, I gave it my best effort, but, um, the more I, yeah, opened up my inquiry to more and more different kinds of people. And the more open I was with, with my doubts and concerns and so on, um, the less I could, I could stick around in that community. And eventually they, they, um, made the decision for me and excommunicated me. Excommunicated. So it was an area like that where they literally choose whether you're allowed to be in the community or not. So it wasn't just like a, it really was a religious based town. I mean, if the excommunicated you, what year are we in? <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it is peculiar. Like I said, I mean, I still, people get, um, you know, I say I was excommunicated and sometimes people get the wrong idea. It's like my family and I are still on good terms. It's not like they, um, have completely disowned okay, me. Good, good. good. Um, but yeah. excommunicated in that context means like, uh, it's like an official label. Like this guy is not part of our religious community. And, um, gotcha. kind of, it's kind of like a warning sticker, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Yeah. And actually in, in retrospect, I kind of respect it. Like I'm now involved with, um, setting up communities and I want to have a boundary on my community and say, if you, if you, you know, if you're showing these behaviors, you're not welcome in this community. So I, I can appreciate it now. I, I saw that the minute you started talking, I said that I see the I see the connection. So democracy, but you spun that in such a different way for yourself personally. Some people could spin that and go, you know, forget the vote and the popular vote of who is allowed to be in a, you know, I should be able to stay, etc. And you kind of turned that and wow, and found some good in it, man. You've done a lot of work with it since, with that just that very basic happening to you, man. That's cool. That's um, wild. I can pick up though on the therapist chair, like if you really want to. Um you know, I just, I just told you the friendly positive story because that's the stuff that I've already processed and turned into this like, oh, I can share this on the radio. There's the reframe, right? But, okay, but so. if, if you want to get into the guts, you know, and into the, the worms climbing out of my nostrils, um, there is a, there is still a really dark side of that experience, which is that, um, the people who told me that they loved me, you know, and, um, 
and in some respects, it's like I can't doubt that love that my family and this community around me. Um, they gave me every opportunity. They had my best interests at heart. They were like super, super caring and attentive, and all that. It's like really, really good people. And I don't, I don't really have a beef with that. But um, the way that they expressed that love was to tell me that there's only one way to live, and um, and to try and protect me from um, living the wrong way and then winding up in eternal suffering of hell. So, in somewhere in my psyche is this idea that love is a constraint. You know that that you your job is to stop people from doing certain things if you love them. Yeah, oh, that's the conflict, right? Because you you understand their intentions are based in their belief or framework of what would be good for you, what's what would save you, and uh, you feel differently that actually that's more the constraint. And uh, that's I think that's a battle many people face, man, all across the world, right? Is that that pull to one conformity with good intentions, right? Of uh, just get the degree, get start, get a job, you know, pay to your your benefits, etc. Uh, I think a lot of those are good intentioned. In, in some way, right? But they don't, ah, oh, man, what a, that's always, that's a shitty, I, th- I hate that connection, right? It's hard because you can't change somebody and their beliefs, right? Especially if their intentions are out of love and their, you know, perception of it for yourself, man. And so, I mean, the the way that that's translated in my life is I've, as I've matured and, and gotten my own, you know, my own um, foundations and my own character and understanding is I just have a very high priority on autonomy and agency. And, and I'm very, very sensitive to any kind of coercion. And that's, um, yeah, that's manifested in, in the kind of work I'm doing now, which is just like, can we work together when no one is forcing anyone, you know, to do something they don't want to do? That's kind of like the underlying question of, of my work for the last six years now. What do you think? We can do better than we usually do. <laughs> well, um, I figured who else better to ask than someone that's been trying to study that for the last six years. And, and I mean, you literally develop software that helps bring close communities together in, in certain ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, the software is um, it's really um, humble, thin, simple, basic rudimentary software. It's not like some magical machine learning or AI or something that's going to help people overcome <laughs> their humanity. Um, but it is it is uh, like a dedicated space where a group of people can come together with the intention of listening and learning from each other and deliberating and growing some shared understanding. And then we have a little bit of, you know, the, the design of the software pushes people gently in the direction of, um, uh, it's, it's almost like a game. Can you say something? Can you propose something that you think everyone's going to agree with? You know, yeah. so first you have to listen to everyone and understand where they're coming from. And then you put up a proposal and, Try and try and solicit their agreement. Oh, are you asking, or are you just being rhetorical? Rhetorical. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But then the question of like, yeah, can can you actually um, operate a, a group in a sustainable fashion without resorting to any coercion? Uh, not quite. <laughs> like, um, not quite. I think. So, does there always have to be a leader? Certainly not. And and leader is one of those words that um, yeah but yeah forgive that I'm pulling some tyranny of words bullshit so uh, does there have to be kind of a designer or an implementer of the plan somebody that's uh, kind of navigating everyone through I think there's just if you think about leaders or leadership and then you break it out into the different components that you're thinking about you know so one of them is 
you know, a visionary, someone that's um, looked into the future and seen something desirable. And then someone, another one is like a communicator, someone who can take that vision and, and share it in a way that other people understand. And then you've got a motivator, someone who's going to like keep people focused on this, on this task and, and encourage them and support them to, you know, pursue it. Um, you've got all these different attributes of what we call leadership that um, in a simplistic way, you can say that's one person and that's the leader and their job is to do that. But uh, in my experience, it's quite possible to, to um, share those roles around between people and to take turns. So um, that's one of the sort of principles of the way that we organize is, is any, any position, that, any role that has some kind of leadership quality to it, um, we rotate it. People take turns with it. And um, it's like we might have two people. So at the moment, we've got three coordinators in our co-op. And they, yeah, they're playing a like coordination function. They know what's going on everywhere and they listen and they summarize all the information and package it in a way that everyone can understand what's going on at a glance. We have two people that are super experienced doing that and one person who's a novice and they're like running alongside us, learning the ropes. And then one of the experienced people will drop out and then we'll bring in another novice. And it's like, we're just creating opportunities for, for people to get access to those kind of skills. Because new exposure to uh, continued patterns allow growth. So if somebody's coming in that hasn't seen it, isn't is isn't familiar with it the day to day, they can then witness the pattern of the experience and say, "Well, why not do this? We, we yeah. try this." Yeah, and they bring their own insight into it. Yeah, I, wow. So you're almost indirectly. I was going to ask you, what are some of the issues uh, that any, whether it's personal, family, business, cultural, etc., uh, are people facing with that hierarchical? Uh, organization i think the main so, so much of what we discovered so like i've been um on this really intensive tour for the last like three months now working with lots of different groups especially activists but sort of any group of people that wants to work in an inclusive way um and one of the things that's become really obvious is just how much of um a group's ability to work in a collaborative fashion comes down to the individuals in it, you know, and, and what kind of state they're in and um, what kind of competencies they have and what kind of maturity they have. And um, if you've got a, a whole bunch of your members that are deeply traumatized and in shock, you know, um, it's very difficult to orchestrate that into a collaborative whole that's thriving. Um, but if you've got people that are happy and well and they're well supported and all that, then, then they can arrive and be ready to, to share power with each other and, and, and to collaborate. So actually a lot of the work that we've been doing um, on ourselves with our group has been to do some kind of informal group therapy, you know, to, to unpick, like, why is it that you're so uptight about this decision? Like, what is it that, um, what's going on for you here? Because you seem to be blowing it way out of proportion. Is there something that I can, you know, can we, can we get underneath that? Taking it deeper, right? Because a lot of times we have those underlying issues. And I, you're right. I think a lot of people, uh, again, indirectly point out some issues with the hierarchical uh, setup. I always used to uh, have a issue with companies that would have a mission statement preset for those that they hire. And you may be working for somebody, but I, I used to say if you can tap into the belief of your employer, your partner, who you're working with, and really create a mission statement around why they come to work, why they do what they do, not a corporate set mission like this, this corporation is on a mission to rather than 
sit with the employees, sit with a group of people and say, well, why do you come here? Why do you come here? And try to pull those beliefs together to then form a mission based around the people that are making that uh, organization function. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, we may have lost you there for a minute, man. Yeah, we did. You back in there, man? I think I'm back. No, that's all right. No worries. Uh, I can recap, man. I'm not sure where you lost, but we were talking about uh, walking around the issues of a hierarchical system, be that organization, business, society, uh, and very eloquent, uh, eloquently, you answered uh, indirectly issues with the hierarchical system by answering why. Um, I love how you put it on your own company, too, that you're not afraid to take your same, what you're researching, what you're studying, and applying that to the organization around yourself. And then using what you learn to others and sharing that power, I think, is big. And it brought up uh, what I used to talk about with businesses and how they had a mission statement uh, mm -hmm. pre preset, pre-organized. And why not sit with your employees afterwards and ask them directly, why do you come to work? What's the belief here? And try to organize a mission that's more tapped into the employee's belief rather than the mission to be accomplished by the uh, organizational machine. Yeah, and when, when you have a hierarchical system, you know, you've got um, the boss has got, you know, the carrot and the stick. They're, they're like, they're going to pay you or else they're going to fire you. And so those two um, sort of fences create the, the boundaries for your behavior. And so you want you want to get the promotion and you, you don't want to lose your job. And so they, they um, set the parameters for what kind of stuff you're going to get up to while you're at work, you know. And, um, and they use all kinds of, you know, status and authority and, um, social grooming and all the rest to get people to all line up. You have a team with 50 people or a thousand people and you want them all pointing in the same direction. And we use, you know, um, organizational charts and all sorts of stuff to, to get people to, we're going, we're all going in the same direction. So then you, um, you, you have some hippies like us that want to work without the hierarchy. And we don't want to use force. We don't want to use coercion. We don't want to use bribery to get people to, you know, point in the same direction. What options have you got? Like, how can you get people to, to face in the same direction? And, um, if you're not going to use force, then uh, you get in, you immediately get into some really kind of esoteric work, you know, because you're dealing with people's intrinsic motivation. Like when I arrive in the morning, I get to work and I get to decide what I'm going to do. And um, if everyone's deciding for themselves what they're going to do, how on earth is that going to be anything more than chaos? And the only way that it can be more than chaos is if you've got some kind of um, shared context, so you know what everyone else is doing, and you've got a shared purpose, so you've all agreed together, like this is the thing. Sure, I've got my own you know, personal um, axe to grind, but this is the thing that we all care about. Uh, and then more than, more than either of these things, I think you need to have deep care for each other. And, and, um, I actually have to care about what you're doing and you have to care about what I'm doing and, and I have to care about who you are and what you care about. And then once we have that, um, uh, you know, depth of care between us, then our intrinsic motivations actually start to align. And that's so much of the work that we're doing is, is to, um, get people to care about them, each other and care about the same stuff so that when they do arrive at work, you know, with the freedom to do whatever they want, it all adds up to something more than just chaos. 
Well, that's beautiful, but it goes completely against all the money-making activities that we know to be in play uh, that speak out, that runs on fear, right? You were talking about the motivation, it's walls. It's really based around the fear, right? And after so many years, if you're performing that job, I think how do we... We can play it off, I guess, over years to say that it's not really out of fear that I'm going here because they'll fire me if I don't. I'm not calling in today. Uh, I got to dress like this. That's the one thing that bothers me is, you know, no jeans. There's always some magical thing in jeans. I don't, but Friday's okay, though. Like, you, you, you can wear jeans on Friday, but not the other four days, right? But it's this fear, right, that pushes you to, to drive on, like you said. Or uh, I love the titles that they come up with sometimes in some of the firms. Well, you'll now be uh, such and such, such and such uh, director. Okay. All right. Yeah, just 40 more hours a week is all we need from you. Yeah. You know, we'll give you a nickel. But um, it's uh, it's it's hard out there. That's a major paradigm shift in structure uh, to teach people. And how sad. Dang, I realize what I'm about to say to teach people to care about one another and what they're doing, man. Oh, and you asked, you know, how did I how did I get to Occupy and then onto Lumio and so on? I mean, one of the the ways I got there was because it wasn't jeans for me. It was the beard. So I had a um, I had a job at an engineering firm. And um, I was doing like uh, satellite networking, like blah, 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 high tech job. And I did a three month trial with them. And then the decision came where they were going, deciding whether or not they were going to employ me. And they were like, you know, we love your work. You know, you've got a great attitude in that, but we are concerned about your beard. And um, we're concerned. We're concerned about this beard. Can you, can you, can you get rid of the beard? Um, and I'm like, I'm not even dealing with clients, you know, like I'm, I'm just in, I'm just in the workshop. And so, and so I was like, I, I'm not actually prepared to shave my face for some arbitrary reason because it's not so much about, you know, my, um, uh, vanity about how great my beard looks. It's about like, if they're going to ask me to do this pointless thing, it's like, are they just testing my obedience? Because, What's going to be next, you know? And so I, and so I was like, you know, I'm not up for that. And so then, then I'm unemployed. And, um, this is where I reveal my extraordinary levels of privilege because in New Zealand, we have a fairly reasonable social welfare state. So that means being unemployed is not the end of the world. And, um, I had some time on my hands to, to sit on the unemployment benefit and actually contemplate the world and contemplate my role in it. And, um, it was the first time, you know, I was like 22 or 23 or something like that. And it was like basically the first time that I'd actually had time to myself without, um, a parent, a teacher, a boss, a preacher, um, a professor, someone like that, you know, telling me this is the important thing. This is the goal. This is where you should go, you know, uh, setting up those, those parameters for me externally. It was the first time I was like in an open plane and just had to decide for myself, what the hell do I want to do? You know, no and, noise, no noise coming, <laughs> right? Yeah, like no noise, yeah, exactly, in life, right? Yeah. Exactly, and no, um, you know, just waking up eight o'clock in the morning and not having a task, not having a destination, and that's terrifying. It's like it's like the roadrunner that goes off the cliff and then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some for some people they get uh, used to it though. There's some can it can really cut you so badly that you really just say uh, I lose all internal motivation for anything and can really begin to give up. But um, you seem to take it differently, which is a, a moment of peace that that quiet you kind of needed without the the noise of direction from those in front of us. I think it took me a long time to get to the peaceful place, but I did I did keep running once I went off the cliff. And um, what I uh, one of the things that I uncovered, you know, when I went looking in my belly button was 
<laughs> so wait a minute. I'm a musician and I've got all this education in um, building electronics. Maybe I could build electronics for musicians, you know, and it's like, I've just gone through four years of university and I didn't think about that until after I was, you know, well, they're not programming you to critically think, man. They're they programming were not. You to think like this. They were not. There was never a question like, Hey, what are you into? <laughs> <laughs> that should be on that, the app for every high school college, right? That should be the first one. So what are you into? Yeah. 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 So, um, I started making basically weird noise machines. Um, I saw that. I looked some of those. They look cool as shit, man. I'm like, I don't know what that does. Some of them I do, but I'm like, that's kind of cool, man. And you put that, you, I was going to bring that up, but you put that together. How long? Well, it was like, um, I started from, from just, um, wanting to make stuff for myself, like a real DIY attitude. Um, I play guitar. I want a little guitar amp. And so I made this thing and then, yeah, I put it on, on, on the internet and people go, wow, that looks cool, man. I want, I want one of those. I want one of those. Like, oh, okay. People are yeah. responding positively. Is that what I sounded like? I hope yeah. I didn't sound like that. Oh, it was nice. It's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, that's, that was sort of, that gave me a, a, a hint, a hunch, you know, like maybe that's, um, maybe that's something I can do with my life for a while. And so I started, um, I spent a couple of years producing these, um, weird machines and, teaching people about electronics and, um, you know, going to music festivals and, and, um, doing a build your own synthesizer class in two hours and, you know, just like really fun, creative stuff like that. And, um, got into, yeah, sort of started bleeding out from the engineering into the art and then found myself in this artistic community and going, what the hell did I get here? And the, um, you know, artists, you generally the engineering type, right? The mechanic, the, the put together, the analytical, this works, the very mechanic. And now uh, you've crossed into the abstract. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the artists that I um, found myself in, they were, you know, they were interested in this thing called inspiration. And, and I learned a bit about inspiration, you know, so I had a, um, I got myself a, like a workshop and I just filled it up with inspirational things, you know, like old, um, hi-fi radios and record players and interesting bits of timber and uh, crazy old electronic devices and just, you know, had a space that was full of inspirational things. And I'd go there in the morning and just like have some peace and quiet with my stuff and go, okay, who's, who's, who's talking to me today? Where's the inspiration coming from? Um, I, I think that's how a lot of, um, evil villains start their uh, career the same way <laughs> they start surrounding them stuff with all, with all their specialties of the stuff they make and you won't walk out of there one day in some storm with uh some radio you know telecommunications uh superpower or something man mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you know as i learned this new competency called inspiration and creativity um I, I discovered, yeah, okay, I can make these cool, weird noise machines and people, people enjoy playing with them and, and, and it's like, it gives me a good buzz. But then I also felt a kind of a, a void, like that's not enough. Like this is cool, but when I look at the world, I don't know if what it needs is like more electronics. I don't know if that's really like the missing ingredient. <laughs> you just kept questioning. So how can I put this together? Was there like, uh, I, I kind of intrigued by the way you said, uh, I learned inspiration. A lot of people think it's this thing that just hits them, right? Like I, this hits me and I, I've been hit with inspiration. Can you kind of walk through what it, what it was like or what, yeah. you know, how you would describe learning what inspiration was? I think, um, maybe it's better to say I unlearned it. You know, I unlearned all the shit that people told me and, and, um, uh, really, really basic example is just, um, my expectations about productivity. 
like I was, I was from such an early age, you know, you go to school five days a week, nine to three, and then, you know, you get a job and you've got this like really, um, like a grid. You take, you take this nonlinear thing called time and then you project the grid onto it and you say, okay, Monday to Friday, nine to five, that's your productive window and you should just produce at a linear rate while you're in that box. And then when that time's over, then you can relax and be creative. And, um, when I, uh, had the freedom to not have to conform to somebody else's schedule, I realized that my productivity comes and goes in crazy waves, you know, like that, um, in a, in a good day, I might wake up early and have a pot of coffee and, um, get into the studio and just like produce the most incredible work in like four hours and then have three weeks where I'm just like clumsy and useless and can't do anything. And like when I learned that that was just my rhythm and I would, if, if I just allowed myself to do it, then everything flowed, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm in a down, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not producing at the moment. So I'm going to go to the library and read books or, Whatever. See, this is, I keep, I feel self-conscious though about the extraordinary degree of privilege of being able to just, you know, go exploring in the world because we have this wonderful thing called socialism in New Zealand. Ah, uh, well, there, there's definitely guilt to some of that too, but I think if it can, I mean, there are, they were talking about in the United States, 10, 20, 30 years, some, uh, set pay that everyone gets every year. I forget what they call it. Um, whether all that is true or what we got to work for, um, not what you were saying. I enjoy what you're saying is the idea of being able to create, uh, I've, I've had that luxury for a little bit, but it's not like it's all VIP and I'm like renting jets, right. And flying. It's not like that. Right. I'm, and I'm a minimalist, so I don't, I don't have shit. So I, I try not to get it confused. Right. It, you, I think I did a show a while ago talking about how you got to kind of choose a certain lifestyle, I think. So if you choose that a nine to five type, a lot of that becomes centered around what you did that weekend, what you bought that weekend, uh, you know, the next house, the new floors, et cetera, as kind of like, see what I've been doing, right. As, as markers, if you will. And yeah. on the other side, I think it's a freedom, but it's also, it's kind of cliche to say you're never off work as an entrepreneur, but I think as an innovator or as a creator, as separate words, an entrepreneur, but as an innovator and creator, uh, I think you're never off work because you do just create. And then a lot of times, like you said, you're off work, but you got to be able to sacrifice. I don't know, living with a bunch of stuff in a big five bedroom house or a uh, jet setting on the weekend off to some Caribbean Island, right? It's uh it's, it, it's an odd, it's a, a odd life. I don't want to say it's harder, but it's different, especially right when we're raised in it's structured. Here's the grid. Here's the pattern. Fault. No, no, no. You, you have to get up Monday at six o'clock and get on the highway with everyone else. Right. We, we get programmed to, to think that way. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I have to say though, that it hasn't been a sacrifice. Like I, mm. I'm, uh, I've made no compromise for like seven, eight years now. And yeah, I've got no stuff. Yeah, I'm like this close to running out of money and I'm in a foreign country and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get home. Um, and, and maybe it would be nice to have more security, but, um, I've got, I've got just the most extraordinary, yeah, privileged life. You know, like I, I feel very blessed and, um, it's by not sacrificing. It's like, nah, you're not having my freedom. I'm having that. That's mine. <laughs> All because they asked the man to shave his beard. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you got to take a stand somewhere. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, hey, you take the stand. That's where you take it. But eventually, you know, you took that stand and, and have experienced a, a different kind of life and been really doing a lot of giving back with your creations. 
And um, that sparked, again, we'll, we'll get to it, that sparked from being involved at Occupy, right? Yeah, I wanted to tell you how I got there because I still, you know, we're still... Okay. Imagine that. We're rambling on the rampage. Yep, yep. So, That's like I said, know. I'm learning inspiration. I'm producing some, like, fun machines, um, but there's a little... I still have a void in my life. Um, what, what the Christians would call the God-shaped hole. Um, I felt like a, my meaning was not quite um, fulfilled yet. And, um, yeah, it was partly about the sense of... of an unfair privilege that I, I could have this sweet life when there's people around me that are having a terrible life and going like, wait, what? why is there so much injustice in the world? And um, why is it that, you know, looks like the planet's, you know, this close to, um, well, the planet's going to be fine, but it looks like um, the human habitat is not, is not so secure. Um, like that seems important. Like, why are we not doing more about that? And, you know, I, I guess what was happening was I was slowly developing a political consciousness and um, and found myself with these artistic people that some of them had a political consciousness too and they were um, not just trying to make pretty interesting creative things, but they were also questioning, like, where did all this injustice come from and maybe we could imagine, like, a, a better, a different kind of society. So I found myself in community, you know, and, and most of them were punks. Most of them were countercultural people that um, had a very stern critique of the status quo and a resistance to participating in it and a desire for a creative alternative. And so in this community, we just started like gathering people, you know, we, we hosted events, we would have a film screening and a discussion or we have a, um, an art exhibition. You get a lot of different artists together and you have some kind of topic and maybe we'll raise money for a charity or, we just have a good conversation about what the hell's going on in Palestine. I don't know. I don't know. Well, how about let's get some people that know about Palestine and we'll, we'll have an exhibition and we'll learn about it together, you know, like, so we're doing stuff like that. And, um, at the time it felt more like creativity than activism. I didn't, didn't really acknowledge it as activism. It was just like we were running creative events and building community. Well, and it once that label gets on something, it has uh, like any other label, right? It comes with its its color. If you tell somebody I'm an activist for this or that, yeah. uh, it it comes with that. Now they kind of took that word, man. They gave it. They gave us some ugh to it, man. It used to mean something, man. Yeah. It used to, you know. So we're doing this creativity buzz, and um, and then, you know, uh, September 2011, um, I'm on Facebook and I see Occupy Wall Street, and I see. Uh, these like weirdos taking over a square in New York city. And um, they're all like singing Kumbaya and beating the drum. And they've got some funky signs and stuff. And then around that square, you've got the NYPD have set up these like Gestapo spy towers. And it's just like, what the hell's going on here? And so I was watching, you know, just watching through Facebook, like, Hmm, that's peculiar. And then, um, you know, whatever it was two weeks later, 600 people are arrested on Brooklyn Bridge. And I'm like, huh, what the? And meanwhile, none of this is being reported in the New Zealand media, you know, and we've got, we've got some really great public broadcasting and there was no mention of 600 people getting arrested on Brooklyn Bridge. I'm like, hmm, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was downplayed. It was definitely, it was pitched as dirty hippies in the way of our traffic and holding up our economy. Yeah. And so I was like, I was really just quite confused about what was happening, but I felt some affinity, like these people are dissatisfied with the world. So am I, and these people are creative and so am I, and they refuse to participate. And so do I. 
Um, and so then um, like a month after it started on Wall Street, there was a, a global day of action and that was October 15th. And um, some people, I don't even know who they were, but they um, called a occupation in, well, they called a gathering in, in Wellington City where I'm from. And they just said, okay, on the 15th at noon, we're all going to gather in the Civic Square. Um, and so I, got, I went down there going, I'm just, I went there with this attitude of like, I'm going to observe. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't identify with those people, but I want to see what what's happening firsthand because I don't trust any um, journalist to get the story for me. And what I observed was um, <laughs> a bunch of people milling around without uh, too much of a clue about what to do because all we knew about Occupy at the time was that it was leaderless. There's no one in charge. So um, we're sort of like, Mm, this is awkward. What are we uh, uh, waiting for it to start? And then someone, um, some random person in the crowd said, Hey, excuse me, excuse me. You know, sort of got some attention and said, Hey, I just wanted to tell you all. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be the leader, but I do want to tell you why I came down here. And I'll just take a minute and maybe when I'm finished, someone else could tell us why you came here. And that was like a really nice kind of invitation. And, um, and so we, you know, this is a big crowd of strangers in the public square. And um, he, he shared his story and he's like, well, frankly, I'm really concerned that the ecosystem is not going to be able to sustain human life for much longer. And that's like the most urgent challenge I can imagine. And we don't seem to be doing much about it at all. So I'm terrified. And um, I, I want to know if anyone wants to do something about that with me. And then the next person stood up and she told a story about how, she had lost two of her family members to um, gang violence. And she's like, this is crazy, the shit that's going on, and no one seems to be doing anything about it. And then, you know, the next person and the next person and the next person, and, and everyone told a story, like 90% of them were stories of grief, you know, like grief and fear and terror. And, like, this shit has got to stop. Enough's enough. We're heading off a cliff. We need to do something. And um, at that point, I had to go. I, um, my grandfather was, um, in the process of dying, which, you know, I called me away and, um, I had to do the family thing, which I'm really glad I got the chance to do. We had, um, quite an awesome, uh, 10 days together saying farewell to him. Yeah. And then, uh, when I came out the other side of that, I texted one of my buddies who had been down at Occupy and I said, Hey man, what's going on up there? Cause I was out of town. So like, what's going on in the city? And he's like, bro, I've been waiting. I know I wanted to give you your space, but you really want to get down here as soon as you can because this shit is incredible. And so I've come back 10 days later and what I find is like a village, a village had just like grown like mushrooms out of the city square. And there's like a couple hundred people living there. Everyone's like eating three square meals a day for free. There's um, educational workshops happening like, back to back to back to back. There's like four different, you know, workshop spaces because there's so much stuff that people want to share with each other. There's like deep discussions, there's media releases, there's like a hospitality crew. It's like this incredible, like, yeah, like a whole village just emerged out of nowhere and, and was organized without anyone being in charge. People just doing it. Somebody said, I'm going to go get the water. Somebody said, I got some tents. Somebody brought this and just... Uh -huh. Really pulling like uh, uh, almost beyond survival mode, but more into we're going to evolve here uh, mode. You know, I think the Wall Street movement, it, it, it faced such a 
a hard cognitive dissonance in so many people's lives because what you experienced by not shaving your beard was enough time to kind of wake up out of the programming and not be in it behaviorally or cognitively or environmentally uh, and let go of it and kind of see, wait, I, I didn't get I didn't get informed. I didn't get an instruction manual. I've just kind of been told this is what we do. And so many people um, survive that way is they, they stay plugged in and they can't, they don't want to snap out of either seeing that they're just kind of being programmed on what to do tomorrow, the next day in wall street uh, or any of the occupiers, if you will, that uh, had anything to do with stopping someone be persistent in that machine or in that daily pattern uh, if anything, just causes anger. And if anger was anger was a huge response from the Occupy movement for uh, a lot of people in the United States. And for me, anger just means hurt and fear. So mm-hmm. if the response is so quick to anger about somebody doing whatever the media was reporting was happening, um, one, you didn't see it that much as a response when the cops did what they did to those occupying. You did not see an anger response, really. You saw a dismissal. And people were so angry, I think, because being hurt and afraid that maybe these people have it right. How can they just take off work when I have to stay in this? And if these people are right, then every the last 10 years or 30 years I've been living my life are completely wrong. And, you know, when they hit people's cognitive dissonance like that, you see where people don't care to even hit people in the street anymore that are protesting that that's how strong a delusion that that uh, that can be presented in people's lives, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was anger in the response, but there was also anger in the movement, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, that the first wave I think was all about, no, it was all like, we got to stop this. we got to stop that. we got to stop this. This doesn't work. This is, you know, yeah, and, yeah. um, and I feel like that's a necessary stage to go through. So like, yeah. Anger is a great coping skill, brother. Yeah. You got to get that shit out. Used right? Uh, Heck yeah. We just put it in the wrong places. I agree with you. We can, you know, we can be angry enough to go, this is not going to happen to me again, for sure. And then though, and then, you know, there comes the stage where it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Like, it's easier to say no, but what are you saying yes to? Right. And, um, and we spent months, you know, sitting around in circles, deliberating together. What are we going to say yes to? And, um, uh, part of what we were saying yes to was, well, we're going to say yes to this kind of self-managed, self-governed community where everyone has an occupation, regardless of their skills or their experience or their abilities or whatever, we're going to find a way that everyone can contribute meaningfully to this community. That's something we're going to say yes to. And we're going to say yes to everyone getting food and shelter. Like it's it's non-negotiable. Everyone gets food and shelter and it doesn't matter. There's just like, there's no way that you can... (laughs) not be allowed that. And, um, and then we started, you know, going in, into more, um, difficult, well, complex challenges about, okay, well, how would you run society? And, um, you know, some of us wrote a manifesto and so on. And it's like, it, it's, in so many ways, it was so inspirational to see this thing happening, but, but, but the, um, the camps that weren't crushed by the cops were crushed by, this difficulty of trying to make consensus face to face in these long, 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 long meetings without any training or experience or support or, you know, like we eventually our camp collapsed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then you have this very simple narrative about how Occupy came along and failed. And 
I just don't buy it. You know, I just don't buy it. Like the, um, the protest movements that have made a difference, I think they take 10, 20, 30 years to propagate. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of people. Sorry, man. Go ahead, brother. Sorry. Just saying there's a lot of people that had an experience there that shifted something fundamental for them and in a way that can't be shifted back. You know, and, and something shifted for me and I, and I saw, you know, dozens of people in my little circle and there were hundreds of camps, thousands of camps around the world. And I know that something shifted for all of them too. So I think the, um, the fruits are yet to drop from that tree. Yeah, I think we started measuring movements by how many people showed up. It's odd how we got to that. Everything was how many people came to the presidential inauguration? How many people showed up? How many people were watching uh, the Super Bowl, right? Uh, how many people really came as if it's a correlation to how big a issue it really is? When I know, I'm, I'm going to say at least 70 to 80% of the population in the United States is affected some way. Uh, financially is burdened or uh, has some loan debt or worried about things like that uh, for me. But I think, can you explain uh, for those from a uh, novice sense that may have been misled on a media uh, idea of what what Occupy was about, what um, the beginning of the movement was for? Well, like I said, when I got down there the first day, we didn't really know anything apart from that. We didn't want to have a leader. And um, that that kind of gets at the point for me, which is um, for me, I'm saying it's not just that there's a bad guy in charge because uh, we've already seen you can take the best possible candidates and put them in charge and they still don't do shit. And it's not because they're bad people and no amount of organizing to get rid of the bad guys and put the good guys in is actually going to fix stuff. That's a structural issue. And, um, we need structural solutions to structural problems. And the essence of it, I think was just people reclaiming democracy as in democracy. Democracy is something for amateurs. It's something where people should come together and practice making sense of the world and caring for each other. And it's not something that's done by professional decision makers in an institution far away where we get to vote for, you know, every three or four years, we get to vote for some representatives. Like that's not democracy. That's some opinion. That's like a popularity contest or something like that. But that's not the democracy that uh, I demand. Yeah. I, um, the only thing that scares me sometimes about having the whole population vote at once for something scares me as a mass, right? That as a, as a mass, it's, it's rare you see as a species or at least our species act in a way, right? There's when a mass of something starts to just believe it, we just roll to it. Um, I mean, I kind of look at by the, what's the number one things on television kind of, right? Like what are the, I wouldn't watch any, any of those things to be uh, yeah. serious, but you're like, how many people are watching what? And so I don't know about the masses voting for everything, but then again, who has the, the competence that's not a subjective level, right? On how it operates. I, I love the approach of new solutions of at least saying we need something new. Uh, I, I don't wear labels myself, but I call myself a radical because I don't believe the system in place, uh, can be fixed by the system in place. I, I just don't. And we have, we, we've turned the leaders into mythical, like Marvel characters that they're, they're going to come in and do what? N nothing. And it doesn't change. Like one person's going to make some big difference. Uh, you're, I love the structural idea, right? It's the frame, the frame of the car is bent, but we keep painting the motherfucker thinking it's, it's gonna, it's gonna drive better. We'll, we'll put a new door on it. Then it'll drive better. And, uh, there isn't change there. I can see how 
the philosophy of what you do or the philosophy really that you're bringing to organizations, to people, uh, even with Lumio, the stuff you're doing, what you write about, what, uh, what really, uh, hit your enthusiasm level. I can see what that was born in, right? I can, I can kind of see how it evolved and said, all right, Occupy was an opportunity. Uh, for a massive change on a scale level, but so was 69, right? So was 69, which I thought I did a video once. I was like, the baby, you were so close. I'm like, you were so close. You, you, you almost got there. And then you had babies and put on the same damn suits. <laughs> you know what I mean? That you were, you were fighting son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> and you, like you said, you see these movements getting closer and closer, right? And I would incorporate Occupy with 69, right? And 67, these major, major changes, 68, uh, and on back because they all do add up, right? They, they add up over time to a major shift in a, a cultural, uh, thought. And that's one of the um, benefits of living in New Zealand as well and not being so caught up in, in all of the noise of the United States is that um, from that distant perspective, sitting down there at the edge of the, of the Pacific, um, I can see how that movement is, you know, there's like a movement of movements and it's not just limited to Occupy. And um, it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm super optimistic. I've, I've been sitting there since our camp collapsed at the end of 2011 and then what do you know? There's this massive student movement in Hungary and then there's one in Brazil and um, uh, Taiwan and Spain and it's like rocketing all around the world and, and we're all learning from each other. Um, the, the story from Taiwan is just totally incredible and I, it's like every time I, someone puts a microphone in front of me, I have to tell it. Yeah, because yeah, no one knows on. about this. Come on, man. Educate. Okay, so um, 2014 couple of years after Occupy Wall Street is, you know, out of, out of the headlines. And um, there's a trade deal being negotiated between Taiwan and mainland China. And it's being done in a particularly undemocratic way. And so some st- student activists take exception to this and they go and occupy their parliament building. And um, they win the support of the citizenry. So there's like, there's like hundreds of thousands of people in the streets surrounding parliament. Wow. It's like, I think it was one in seven or one in eight people from Taipei were in the street at the time. Wow. And, um, they proceed to occupy the building for like 27 days. And what they're doing while they're there is they're not just saying this is a bad trade deal. They're saying this is a bad process. And if we were really a democratic country, this is how we'd negotiate a trade deal. And so they brought all the stakeholders in, you know, they got people from China, they got people from Taiwan, they got people from trade unions, bankers, like all the people that have some expertise on this topic. And they brought them together and they had a public deliberation and they, you know, broadcast the whole thing and, and translated it into a bunch of different languages. And they um, had some just experienced deliberators and facilitators host this thing and say, okay, you know, what kind of trade deal would make sense here? And, and, and what they were demonstrating was like, there's a much better approach to making decisions than having these like officials that go into a dark room and come out the other side with a new agreement that privileges the rich at the expense of everyone else. And so um, eventually the government agreed to, um, to stop the trade deal um, as it was, as it was proceeding. And, and to, um, once they got that agreement, the students left and they, cleaned up the building and left it spotless, which I really love. Yeah, yeah. And since then, you know, the government has been scrambling to try and catch up to 
um, the demands of the people because there was such a massive, massive movement of people saying, you've lost your credibility. These young folks know how to do it much better than you do. So they've been scrambling. And um, I guess the long story short is now, three years later, um, every piece of legislation in Taiwan has to go through a public deliberation phase. And so we're talking about like last year they did one um, on on Uber, or well, not just Uber, but ride-sharing apps, you know, and like how we're going to regulate these things because they're a new beast that are um, messing with legislators all around the world. How are we going to handle this? And they ha- held a process that was a combination of face-to-face meetings and an online part, and they were, you know, going back and forth between the two. And they got thousands of people to participate, like officials and um, uh, this general manager of Uber, but also regular citizens participating in this process and eventually they generated eight policy points like this and this and this and this about how we're going to govern these things and they got at least 80% agreement from people all the participants and then they sent that document over to the transport authority and they went stamp that's the new law and this is this is now business as usual in Taiwan and it's because of the occupation and why did they choose occupy as a tactic i mean because yeah, it's I, like, <laughs> yeah, they they took it. Yeah, they took it back when the government does have to go. I mean, it just scares me in a population size like ours that the response of the government already is the police department. After the police department, who should just turn around anyway? Because they're getting underpaid for doing a shit fucking uh, job they have to do. And uh, they turn around. Then the National Guard would come in. Then they would have to turn around on the benefits. Then the military would be in. I fear that this would be more the response otherwise, right? Instead of this uh, idea of, holy shit, the masses really are here. Um, I'd love, um, why not a tribal way? I like that idea. Your local community puts together heads that you all vote in that like a council, it actually means something that's not linked to corporations, not linked to payoffs and, uh, nonprofit funds and promises of law changes. I mean, it, it can't be that hard right now. I'm, I'm way off. Yeah. It's yeah. Right. To start over. I mean, I'm kind of like, right. Let's just everyone on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, we do this now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think the um I think the salient thing about the example in Taiwan was that they did two things. One was they um they built power outside of the institution. But yeah. two, then they came back and negotiated with the institution. They had a solution. Before yeah. it's almost we said, here we go, here's our solution, here's our boards of bankers, business owners or whatever, people involved in all areas. And I I like that they showed up with a solution, not just a sign. Yeah, and they had a a kind of mass people power that wasn't um, sucked into the uh, the existing electoral channels. You know, it's like it wasn't one party or another party. It was like this this new movement that um, wasn't already tarred by the corruption of lobbyists and corporate money and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, we're so polarized, man. That's the issue, right? We we get that's our team, and we no longer once we a person I think decides that that's my team. We don't really listen. We just tell the narrative of whatever's been kicked out by that team. And I don't really care whether it's liberal, Democrat, you know, whatever we call it. It's the assigning of a team rather than a solution, right? It's like once you pick the team, I think you've already kind of said your no or yes if you were on the council. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it goes instead of people sitting around going, yeah, I, I, I'm not a party and I am open to change my mind, right? I'm a, Shit, I learned the facts and I changed my mind, right? What would be wrong with that? But I can't because I'm this party affiliated. I'm this title, right? So I, I can't do that. Okay, so what's wrong with changing your mind? I mean, that's I think that's a really important question. And um, coming back to where we started about the therapy thing, it's like why are people um, so reticent 
to admit that they were wrong and to update their perspective, you know. It's because they're like terrified about how they're going to lose their identity if they were if they're revealed to be a fraud or like you're a hollow man, you don't actually know what you think. Like we have to address that at a very very deep root, I think. You know, um that that people can feel like it's okay to just have half the story and then I'm going to learn the rest of the story from you. And um I don't know about you, but I feel like I was trained to always have all the answers and to always put the best image forward and to look like I'm, I'm the guy that knows all the answers. And it just doesn't set you up well for, for actually doing the democracy thing. Mm, right. The whole image of what's the go-getter in the United States kind of presents against that, right? There's, you don't see a lot of humility, right? In the idea of going, uh, oh, I do think like that? Oh, I did say that. I did. Well, I wonder why I think like that is, could it be my own bias? It's, it's that difficult, the difficulty, right? To question self, to question the process. We're such a, a species of pattern, right? But there's people get comfortable or I think I almost complacent in the idea that this is my grid and Richard, I, I want to stay within my grid. This is what works. This, what doesn't work and uh, are sometimes afraid to push it. Cause right let's say what's life without what we have like, right? There's the fear that people would keep in. Okay. If you don't like what we have, even though it's the best period, right? As they would say, what else is there, right? There's nothing else better. They've tried it for so many years, but what a downplay on our freaking potential, right? It's like, this is, this is all we know. So this is the best it gets. And uh, there's got to be a dimension as well, which is just like, you know, people always want to say, I know what's up and I'm confident and, you know, I'm the man, I'm the man, man. And, and why do you do that? Because you want to get paid. And why do you want to get paid? Because otherwise you're not going to eat and you're going to be out in the street. And so you, you've got this like very real threat just sitting there in the corner growling at you saying, you better show up and know what you're talking about every day because otherwise you're going to be out there and you're going to be a loser. You know, back, and, and back to the fear, right? People need to um, be in some kind of supportive community before they're going to show their vulnerability to say, actually, I don't totally know. I've got some ideas. I've got some inspiration, but I need to hear from yours. And I'm, I'm just, um, I'm just a little piece of this. Yeah. The, the, the giving the self up in a comfortable place to do so, right. To, to trust somebody. That's what I was trying to build with that tribe of change on the Facebook. It's really kind of grown to that too, is you see more and more people being vulnerable on videos. Like I was hoping people would start doing and it's a, it's a good place to start. Right. But I, we've been talking a lot actually last couple of weeks on there about connection and social connection and open to others perception. If, you know, you can take that same person we were, you were actually hitting on the uh, idea and ask them, you know, is there a truth in the world other than the scientific stuff we can prove? Is there truth in the world? And they may tell you, well, no, right. It's the perception of a person, but if they even know that, and then you ask them to question their own per, their own truth, their own belief of what is, and automatically, no, th- this is right. This perception is, no, you can't have your own perception or view of it. This is mine, even though in an out-of-context conversation, like, yeah, it's all perception and opinion. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at with the, um, like the fear of being out on the street. Like, there is an economic dimension to this that... Um, uh, and, and so for me, the cure is to actually start practicing uh, a, a collective kind of economics, like a mutual aid where you're not just sharing your feelings and your ideas, but you're also sharing the rent and sharing the food and um, showing people, demonstrating, hey, look, um, we got you. Like you can relax a little bit because we got you. And um, 
and I, I really think there's a therapy that comes from that when, when, um, yeah, people get to share just the material stuff, you know, of, of eating together and having a house that's shared, you know, like right now I'm in somebody else's house and it's a shared house and they're like, yeah, of course you can come and stay for a few days while you're in town. And it's like, there's something deeply therapeutic about knowing that someone's got my back, someone that's like a friend of a friend of a friend, you know? Yeah, I think we like doing that. I I love inviting friends over for dinner, right, and sharing the food. I think that's a that's so common in almost every culture across the world. I hate saying every, but to share food at a table with people, I think doing that uh is something but right, here's what America's gonna say, right? Well the competition. We need the competition to to further our uh our our whatever we're doing here. But I, I do find that I do create better when it's not a force, when it's not a pressure, right? If you don't have to go do something, right? Uh if you enjoy what you're doing and to share those things. It's uh very Venus project, right? I mean I guess we gotta we gotta at least bring bring up uh the beautiful thing going on there. But yeah. it's such a paradigm shift, man. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I've um noticed on this on this trip while I'm away from my hometown. Um one of the aspects that I took for granted about New Zealand is that it's just totally commonplace um, for young adults. So from the time you leave, leave your family home to go to university to the time that you, you know, get married and have kids. So there's usually like what, five or 10 years in there. Um, we all live in shared housing and that's just, that's just the normal thing. And um, back home, I live with six people in this big old house and um you know, no one's in charge of the house. We do it together. We pull our money. We pay the bills. We eat together. Like that's just normal. We don't even, it's not even something that you talk about. It's just like, that's how people live there. And that's not really how they do things here. And it's not how they do things in Korea either, where I was last time. And, and it's like, it gives you, um, a different set of expectations, I think, compared to if you're all about like, looking after you and yours, you know, like maybe your parents will look after you or else it's just on you. If you don't have that good fortune, it's just on you and you've got to hustle and hustle and hustle. And to, to have like a small crew that are actually looking after you, I think it really shifts. It really shifts something deep. Yeah. It speaks to the power of the, the social connection and to go beyond the social connection, to be less vague, this, the social sharing, I think, uh, is, is a, is a whole paradigm shift new for people to, to think about, even though, uh, I know a lot of people listen and share with their immediate family, friends, right? We share food all the time. You need to borrow this. We give rides, right? We all tend to share that way. But, uh, I think it's a fear. Maybe it boils down to the, the half of the human race that believes that, uh, everybody else is out to get there. So I got to get mine. And the other half that's going, I'll share mine with you, man. It's cool. Right. And that fear, it seems fear driven, man. And my, um, I guess my strategy, if there is one, is just to like try and increase my sharing, you know, like, um, can I share more with these people or can I share with more people and, um, keep pushing until it's uncomfortable and then push it a bit more. And, um, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the recipe I know. And it's, it's serving me so far, you know? It, it seems like that's the, the drive behind Lumio is I, you're almost doing the same thing you did back when you took your engineering and applied it to the instruments in some creative uh, idea is you're taking that very uh, powerful mechanistic brain of yours and engineering brain of how machines and things work and your experiences of what you've been in saying, OK, we can bring some organizational, some mechanical organizational uh, way to this so this can function and be replicated uh, different times and the way you shift out people for growth and change. I, uh, I'm i going to say, man, you're a heck of a lifestyle or a culture engineer, man. Well, that's that's the thing. Like I um 
I don't do much of the product engineering. Like we've got awesome, awesome people working on that stuff and I can just get out of the way and let them do it. But my focus has been largely on, yeah, the culture engineering. So like, how are we going to, um, how are we going to work together in a way that works for everyone? And, um, do you see the people as the parts in the machine? Why an engineer may see the nut and bolt. I think you see the people and what they bring as, as parts in the machine. I, I guess I try to go beyond the machine, you know, like it's, okay. it's more about, um, it's a posture, you know, it's like a, it's a, um, it's like where maybe the, maybe the, the machine is like a, um, a windsurf, windsurfer and it's like, uh, we want to, we want to angle ourselves in the right way to catch the breeze. Um, uh, and, and, and that just means like, can we, it's not so much focused on the outcome that we're, we're like scooting towards. It's more like, are we, are we, um, doing now well is, is now good. And we're just like, keep orienting ourselves to now and like, how's, how's people going? And it's like, yeah, if I look around the team right now, there's some shit going on and we need to, we need to focus on that and straighten that again. And it's like just this continuous job of identifying like, where's the tension and how are we going to unravel that and, and sweeten it up again so that we can get back into that easy flowing posture. Yeah, I think machine probably, I would say an ever-growing machine that kind of is built also to kind of grow itself, right? That is in a constant state of growth because of the way it's built uh, and the way it shares and the way uh, it leaves no person without the basics too. I the, I think a lot, you know, I'm going to bring up Maslow is that idea of those basic needs. When those are met, uh, I'm going to lean a little bit toward his research as kind of being there. When those first ideas on the shelter, when the safety, when the food, when these hierarchies are met, uh, I think people really can be kind. They can be sharing, right? You can move to those levels. May not the idea of self-actualization, but maybe social actualization can mm-hmm. happen on that level when uh, if enough people, you know, are well, at least with majority have food, shelter, water, safety, Perhaps a, a, a global or a social self actual or a social actualization possibly could happen, man. Yeah, and I'm I'm optimistic that it is happening, and it's just um, it 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 doesn't. It's not so we don't hear about it much, and it's not just like it's easy to say ah oh, the media the bad people and they're out to get us and blah blah blah. It's not quite that I think you know like when I was in Occupy, um, we had some reporters come down, and they like we just didn't fit into their story. They just couldn't, they just couldn't see what was going on. They're like, okay, who's the spokesperson? I'm like, no spokesperson. You, you know, you're gonna have to talk to a lot of people and get different perspectives and just not try and summarize it. Just say, look, there's a lot of different shit going on. Yeah. That's what's going on. Like, <laughs> there is no one thing that you can grab onto. And like our storytelling apparatus and our sense making apparatus is tuned for an out of date reality. And there is a new reality that's emerging, but it's really hard to see it and it's really hard to name it and to point to it because we haven't experienced it yet, most of us. They can, all these experiences don't have language yet. So how, how am I supposed to get on the news and tell you, hey, look, this is the new paradigm. It's just come out today. Like, you can't broadcast that shit. It has to transmit like person to person in a, in a rubbing off of culture between us. Uh, well, you can be my spokesperson, man. <laughs> You're rampaging off right there, man. <laughs> That's that. I love it when we get to that part, man. That was, uh, yeah, you kind of flow stated rampage there for a minute, man. Uh, what do you see on 
an immediate future change, maybe. Uh, if you could go in with the magic wand, right, and wake up tomorrow, right? You you, you do something, you, you make a wish, you, you wake up the next day, what will have happened for you? Or, yeah, just for, for you, for the world, whatever. A, a miracle happens and you go to sleep and wake up tomorrow. What would that be, man? I, um, I came to the United States uh, looking for reasons to be optimistic. And, um, I haven't found many, to be honest. Like there's a few, I met some small communities, um, that are doing some, some real work. They're feeding each other and they are, um, looking after the material needs of people that have been, um, on the receiving end of, of terrible violence from the state. And those people, they made me optimistic, but they're a tiny, tiny minority. Uh, I I have not got a ready, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm quite a creative person and I can spin an optimistic story out of a complex situation and I'm having a difficult time doing that here. And um, yesterday I read this speech from a um, Native American elder from way back in the 80s and he's talking about Marxism and how it's um, it's not the revolution for him and da-da-da. And, um, and one of his points he made was just like, look, if you're going to live out of harmony with nature, eventually nature's going to bring you back into harmony one way or the other. And like, I, I don't want to wish, you know, I don't want to wish that on people because that's going to involve just a huge amount of loss. But it's really hard for me to see another way that this is going to play out apart from a severe, severe collapse of civilization in this part of the world. And I'm just hopeful that um, between... South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, there's going to be some, some other like flourishing developments. But honestly, man, I, I do not have a, a sweet story to tell you about this country yet. Yeah. So if you did though, if you woke up tomorrow and a miracle happened, brother, what's, what's the one miracle? If you, if it, if it came true for you overnight, what would that be, man? Uh, I would probably just start with the, the, like what's, what is our capacity? What, what, what's my sphere of influence? That's like, it's not about the government or the media or whatever. It's like, look, this person's in need. I'm going to help them. And, you know, like I'm in San Francisco and it's just, it's crazy to walk around the streets and see how many people don't have homes and then to walk into this building. And it's like, this is, I'm in the most beautiful place, you know? And it's like, uh, if we had a critical mass of people that woke up and said, you know what, I'm not going to wait for anyone else. I'm going to, I'm going to help this guy who's had a rough life and give him a, give them a place to eat and a place to stay. Maybe that would make a difference. I don't know. But um, I'm, I'm always focused on like, what is it that I can do with my two hands and my creative energy? I, I will take away from that, man. I, I actually like that. The If you could wake up, I'll take the miracles. We all woke up with the frame of mind of what can I do to help somebody else. I I think that would be a massive change. All right. So if I get three wishes, I'm going to call you to make my one of my wishes, at least so I don't mess up. That's a good wish, man. It's well thought out, man. I like that. <laughs> Uh, I like that, man. I, I appreciate you coming on, Richard. Uh, is there any anything we didn't cover? Anything you want to talk about that uh, we didn't hit? Anything about Lumio or anything? Just open mic to you, man. Whatever. You uh, want to I mean, there's so much to say, right? Like, um, we we barely touched on Lumio or what it does. Or I didn't even mention the word Inspiral, which is this community of 250 people now that are um, 
practicing a non-hierarchical way of working around the world and like there's a lot of there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff but I do, I do have somewhere to be that's the issue okay yeah that's what i thought man because i you can come back on anytime man uh yeah, you want to book it uh we can definitely talk more about so it's in spiral right yeah that's e in spiral like encouragement you know in spiral i like it in spiral uh i did i looked that up actually before i was reading some of the articles on there uh a lot of talk about um, some uh, non-hierarchical communities and uh, what what to do and what to try that's innovative to me so it may not be recognized now but the the tribes that are doing that and experimenting with that may have a massive effect in the next 100 200 years of uh, or sooner of how we start to live and are maybe forced to live uh whether our decision uh, or not right yeah well i mean let's be real this this version is not working so well so maybe it's time for a reboot yeah i uh, no disrespect no disrespect no i think a lot of people are are i mean look the idea of a prepper was nef- nothing you know and now it's a thing you know so people are digging holes and building it with steel reinforcements i mean whether we're paranoid or or really preparing right you, you shit these things didn't exist but I'll tell you my prepping. I've been prepping for, for eight years now, and it comes down to this. Number one, invest in the common good. Number two, learn how to work together. And if you do that, like, yeah, okay, the state collapses. Yeah, the economy collapses, but you've got some skills and you've got some shared resources. I'm That's in, my prep. Man. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. So Richard for not our leader. All right. <laughs> uh, man, man, I appreciate the love and sharing man, the experience uh, and, and talking about yourself too, man. Thank you. I'm grateful for the invitation, man. Keep up the good work. Oh, we're trying, man. We have our moments, but you can come back anytime, man. I appreciate it, dude. Peace. So how was Later. it? Did you like it? Did you love it? Let us know. Go to thecognitiverampage.com. Feel free to contribute, donate, keep fueling the change, whatever it is that you guys can do to help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. And of course, your contributions. Love you.